Turning the book to, uh, in the book of Zephaniah, Zephaniah, it's just after Habakkuk, just before um, Haggai. We're coming to the end of our series. We're going to be doing Haggai, then Zechariah, and then Malachi, and then we've finished this, our quick review of uh, the 12 minor prophets, what I'm calling the 12. So let's ask the Lord's blessing on the word this morning. Father, we love you. And we love your word, even sometimes when it's so convicting. Because it's kind of like an encouraging slap on the back, sometimes a kick in the pants. It uplifts us. It corrects us. It shows us your love. So may the Spirit of God this morning do its work among us, May we sense your presence coming from this book written so long ago and yet as applicable as if it was just written just a few days ago. So we'll be careful to give you the praise as you work in our midst. In Jesus' name, amen. When I attended Bible school in Fresno, the students were given responsibilities of sharing the gospel. And one of the ways we did it is we would go to downtown Fresno and do what they call bar busting. Bar busting. You know what bar busting is? You go, we would go to the neighborhood where all the strip clubs and the bars were in Fresno, and we would take a group of students, three or four of us, would go into each bar or each strip joint, and we'd just go in and start sharing the word with the customers. And then what would happen is the bartender would really get mad at us and then he would throw us out. And that was called bar busting. And then we'd move down to the next place. Now, when we were in the strip joints, we had to keep our eyes fixed on the person that we were sharing to because over here there was a lot of stuff that was not real encouraging, if you get what I mean. One of our teachers at Fresno at the Bible school He had a different way of sharing the gospel. He was a singer. He was a gospel singer. So he would take his guitar and his guitar case and go into a bar and set it up against the bar and order uh, ginger ale or whatever. And he'd just sit there drinking his ginger ale. And then sooner or later, as people got a little bit looser, you know, the evening moved on, people would say, well, what's that on the... What do you got there, pal? And he says, oh, it's a guitar. He says, oh, do you play? Yes. Do you sing? Yeah. Oh, yeah, hey, Charlie, this guy sings. And before you know it, they get three or four people saying, hey, uh, why don't you sing us a song? He's, no, no, I don't want to sing. No, it's a, it's a, I'm just, no, 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 I don't want, no, go ahead, sing, go ahead, sing. Please, please sing. And they'd say, well, and he asked the bartender, would it be all right if I sing a song or two? And they, I said, oh, sure, go ahead, sing a song. So he'd get out his guitar and he'd start playing. And all of his songs was about receiving Jesus as your Lord and Savior. <laughs> It worked, you know, whatever it works. Now, the reason I say that is because today we have many churches trying different methods and ways of how to get the people to turn back to the Lord. We have what they call the seeker-sensitive moment movement. We have the emerging movement, emergent movement. We have return to mysticism, robes and, uh, you know, incense and all that. Some of them are very innovative ways. Uh, Some of them are suspect in their theology, uh, but I'm not into criticizing uh, 
That's not what I'm doing here this morning. But rather, I think the Bible presents a much better way. The Bible presents a much better way. And uh, that's what we're going to find in the book of Zephaniah. But it's not only in the book of Zephaniah. It repeats itself over and over again. Now, our series in the Minor Prophets brings us to the book of Zephaniah. He ministered to the southern kingdom in uh, the late 7th century B.C. But I'm going to use him because he presents in um, three really simple steps the way that the Lord used him to turn a group of people who really needed to get back to the Lord. So in order to do that, however, I have to kind of set the context and then we'll look at the... uh, the issues, the three issues that he presents, which were very effective in his day. But let's set the context first. It's found in, um, let's begin in verse 1 of chapter 1. The word of the Lord which came to Zephaniah, the son of Cushi, the son of Gedaliah, the son of Amariah, the son of Ezekiah. So that gives his genealogy. He served the Lord in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah. So Zephaniah served during the days of Josiah. The Josiah was a good king, if you remember that. Now, did you notice, those of you who know your Bible, that Zephaniah is related to King Josiah? How do I say that? Well, look, let's look at Josiah. Josiah was the son of Ammon. Ammon's father was a fellow called Manasseh. And Manasseh's father was a fellow called Hezekiah. You could say they were cousins, I guess, some sort of cousins. Now, in order to kind of understand what's going on here, we need to go back just for a moment to 2 Chronicles 33. 2 Chronicles 33. Turn there with me for just a moment. I want to set the context here. 2 Chronicles 33, verse 1. Let's start with this fellow called Manasseh. Manasseh was the son of Hezekiah. Hezekiah was a good king, good man. When he passed away, 2 Chronicles 33 says, Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king, and he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. Long time. One of the longer reigns. Okay, what was Manasseh like? Skip up to verse 9. Here's a description of Manasseh's reign. Thus Manasseh misled Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord destroyed before the sons of Israel. Manasseh was a wicked, evil man. Even though later on in his life he did repent, for most of his reign he was wicked. As a matter of fact, he led... Israel way past the evil that the pagans did who were there before Israel came to the land. As a matter of fact, in another place in the Bible, the Bible tells us that after Manasseh's reign, God said, that's it. (laughs) I've had it up to here with you. You're done. You're done. The, The nation of Israel, Judah, is done. It was Manasseh's reign that kind of put the cherry on the cake for Israel. Okay. Now, So Manasseh dies, his son, 
verse 21, becomes king. Let's read about him. Ammon, Manasseh's son, was 22 years old when he became king, and he reigned two years in Jerusalem. Verse 22, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord as Manasseh, his father, had done. So he was a wicked, evil man, okay? He was assassinated and killed two years into his reign. His son was Josiah. Look at verse 34, uh, chapter 34, verse 1. Josiah was eight years old. Eight years old when he became king, and he reigned 31 years. Now look, scroll down to verse 3. In his eighth year, that's when he was 16 years old, because he started as king as as eight-year-old. In his 16th year of his reign, he began to seek God. Ah. In his 12th year, same verse, when he was 20, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of all the high places and the Asherim, the foreign gods. He began to cleanse the land when he was 20. Look up at verse 8. Now in the 18th year, when he was 26 years old, he began to cleanse the temple. Do you remember the story? When he cleansed the temple, he found what? He found the book of the law. He recovered the Bible and brought revival. Now, why did I go all through that? Let me ask you a question. What was it that turned Josiah around? His father was a loser. (laughs) His grandfather reigned for 55 years, and he was the worst king ever. He had that background. When Josiah became king at eight years old, Israel was in a very, very, very bad place. What was it? Or better yet, who was it that turned this young man around by the time he was 16, he began to seek the Lord. By the time he was 20, he began to cleanse the land. By the time he was 26, he reestablished temple worship. What was it? Can I just make a supposition? This is not from the Bible. You won't find this in the Bible. This is just supposing. Zephaniah was his cousin, and he was a godly man. Is it possible Is it possible, just for your consideration, that Zephaniah had a powerful influence on his younger cousin? And he was able, because he was in the royal family, he saw Josiah on a regular basis. Is it possible that he began to turn and groom this young man so that as he came to age, he was able to begin to cleanse the land of all the wickedness of his father and his grandfather, mm, a strong possibility that he did. Now, here's, this, here's, here's where we go into the text. What was it that Zephaniah told Josiah, and what was it that Zephaniah told the people of southern Jerusalem, of Judah, had turned them from the wickedness of Manasseh and the wickedness of Ammon to serving the Lord during the life of Josiah. What was it? Here's another supposition. Perhaps just what we have before us 
in the book of Zephaniah. That sets the context. In the book of Zephaniah, you have three issues, and they repeat themselves over and over and over again in the Bible. This is God's plan of how you turn people from their own wickedness back to following the Lord. Let's take a look. Three issues. First, the first issue is God's judgment. God's judgment. Why do I say that? It's right here. Now, if you know anything about Paul and the book of Romans, the first two and a half chapters of Romans, what does Paul do? He talks about God's judgment. God's judgment on the pagans, God's judgment on the moralists, God's judgment on the religious people. He lays the foundation by preaching that all of us have fallen short of the glory of God and we are all under the judgment of God. That's exactly what Zephaniah does. Let's take a look. There's three final, three aspects to God's judgment. First, God's ultimate judgment in verses 2 through 3 of chapter 1 and also repeated in verses 14 through 18. Let's just look at verses 2 and 3. I will completely remove all things from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will remove man and beast. I will remove birds, sky, fish of the sea, ruins along with the wicked. I will cut off man from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. Here in these verses... He's talking about the final judgment. He's talking about the final judgment. He's talking about that which takes place all the way, not in Zephaniah's day, not in Josiah's day, not in our day. He's talking about the judgment that takes place at the end of the book of Revelation when God completely and his righteousness completely takes care of this wicked, evil earth. So the first part he places, he talks about God's final judgment. Then, secondly, he talks about God's judgment on Judah. God's judgment on Judah. Now, why would God judge his own people? Great question. Look at verse 4 of chapter 1. Same theme is presented in chapter 3, verse, verses 1 through 7. Look what it says. So I will stretch my hand out against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. I will cut off the remnant of Baal from this place, the names of the idolatrous priests and along with the priests. So there were people who were priests of Baal, who were Jews. He goes on. And those who bowed down to the housetop of the host of heaven, there were those who were worshiping the sun and the moon and the stars, who were Jewish. And those who bowed down and swear to the Lord... They said they went to the temple, yet they swear by Milcon, another false god. And those who had turned back from following the Lord, they had rejected the Lord. And those who have not sought the Lord or inquired him, they didn't have anything to do with him all their lives. God was going to bring judgment on them. Finally, God was going to bring judgment on the unbelieving nations. Look at chapter 2, verses 4 through 15. He names them. Chapter 2, verses 4. He's going to bring judgment on Gaza, on Ashkelon, on Ashdod. Verse 5, the Cherethites. Verse 8, 
Moab, these are all the nations that surrounded the southern uh, kingdom of Judah. From Ammon, verse 12, the Ethiopians, verse 13, Assyria, we talked about them, and the city of Nineveh. Why was he going to do that? Look at verse 10 of chapter 2. This they will have in return for their pride, their arrogance, their self-sufficiency, because they have taunted and become arrogant against the people of the Lord. Verse 15, this exultant city which dwells securely, who says in her heart, I am and there's no one besides me. (laughs) They were going to come against the judgment of God. Now, so he was going to bring judgment Ultimately, on this earth, he was going to judge Judah. He was going to judge the unbelieving nations. Why is this so important? Why is the judgment of God primary? Well, for many of us, our own ego tells us that we're not so bad. Come on. I'm not so bad. I'm not like my neighbor. He's really bad. You know, I'm... I'm a good guy. Oh, yeah. Mm, I've done some things wrong, but I haven't ever murdered anybody. I'm not too bad. You know, when I get to heaven, God will take the good things that I've done, and I'm hoping that the good things, he'll see some of the good things, and he'll kind of outweigh some of the bad things that I've done. I'm not so bad. And you know, on face value in, in, today, in light of reality of today, that's probably true for many of us, amen? We're not so bad. Uh, there's just one small thing that we forget. And the small thing is that God's standard is absolute perfection. God's standard, what? What? God's standard is You have to be absolutely sinless. We need to come face to face with our own lostness. That we are absolutely lost. There is nothing that we can do. We all fall short of the glory of God. Jesus was speaking to the religious leaders of his day in John chapter 8, verse 24. And he says, unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Unless you know that I am the Messiah and you believe in him, believe in me, you will die in your sins. And they were very religious people. You see... If we, if we don't come to that face-to-face, the fact that we fall short and we will be judged by God, we will be judged by God, unless that happens, then why get saved? Because I'm okay. I'm going to be all right. God, I know God's fair, and he'll, you know, he'll deal fair with me. Yeah, I failed, but, you know, he'll, I've been good. I've listened to Pastor Neil's crummy sermons all these years. Surely that counts for something or whatever you want us to. You've got to come 
to the end of yourself. Stop the justification, stop the excuses, and you come to the fact is, my God, I'm under the judgment of God. Because that other kind of thinking, you know where that'll lead you? I'm okay, and, and my good outweigh my bad. You know where that'll lead you? The lake of fire. <laughs> That's where it'll end you. So the first thing that Zephaniah begins to talk about the judgment of God. The second issue, chapter 2. If you come to that place where you can't rely on your own righteousness, what are you supposed to do? What are you supposed to do? You're lost. Zephaniah gives us the answer. You are to seek the Lord. Look, read verses 2, verses 1 through 3. Gather yourselves together. Yes, gather, O nation, without shame before the decree takes effect. The day passes like chaff before the burning anger of the Lord comes upon you. Before the day of the Lord, anger comes upon you. Seek the Lord, all you who are humble of the earth who have carried out his ordinances. Seek righteousness. Seek humility. Perhaps you will be hidden in the day of the Lord's anger. There's five elements here. Let's take a look. Verse one. First he calls the whole nation. Gather yourselves, gather, O nation, without shame. He's talking to the whole nation here. They're without shame. Why? Because what, what had been years before looked at as Shameful. How, how can you do that? Has now been kind of accepted as that's okay. Does that sound familiar? <laughs> Things that were totally unacceptable 40, 50, 30 years ago, 20 years ago in our country, they would have been shameful. Now we're saying, oh, it's just, it's fine. That's just the way it is. It was a nation of shame. Second element. Well, if we're in that place, what are we to do? We're to seek the Lord before. Before what? (laughs) Before the temporal judgment of God came. Before the ultimate judgment of God came. The book of Hebrews tells us today is the day of salvation. What does that mean? That means if the Spirit of God is speaking to you and convicting you, and you suddenly are aware that you're under the judgment of God because of your sin, today, you're to act on it today. Don't wait. Why is that? It goes on in Hebrews 9.27, and it says, and is appointed for men to die once. And after this, the judgment. You need to do it before you die. You need to get right with God now, today, before you die. Genesis chapter 6 says this. It says, the Spirit of God will not always strive with man. He'll not always strive with you. There'll come a time 
Well, you'll harden your heart, and the Spirit will go say, okay, that's it. That's it. I'm done with you. (laughs) So when the Spirit of God is speaking to you, what should you do? I'll just ignore it. Maybe it'll come back later on. Whatever. I got another chance. No, 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 no. You have no guarantees. No guarantees whatsoever. Then he says, Speak, seek the Lord. And he's speaking to the whole nation. Those of you who are, understand your own lostness, those of you who are, have faced the awesome righteousness of God and how far you fall short, those are the ones that speak, should seek the Lord. What does it mean to seek the Lord? Look what he says in the second half of verse 3. Seek righteousness. Seek humility. Seek righteousness. Wait a minute, Pastor. You just told us. Righteousness is absolute perfection. It's not going to happen here. No, it's not going to happen here. So how can you seek righteousness? Two thoughts there. In Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, the Bible says that Abraham believed God's word and it was accounted to him as righteousness. Did you hear that? All that Abraham had to do was just believe what the word of the Lord said, and the Lord said, I'm going to count your belief as righteousness. You're kidding. And that is the same in the Hebrew scriptures, and that truth transfers right over to the New Testament times. All you have to do is believe God's word. Well, what does the word of God tell us? Well, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Unless you're born again, you shall not enter or see the kingdom of God. Unless you know that I am he, the Messiah, that what I did on the cross and the resurrection makes you right. If you don't believe that, You'll die in your sins. You mean I can be accounted righteous as perfect if I believe God's word? If I transfer my faith from myself and my good works to a place where I'm just trusting only in Christ? I can be counted righteous? Yes, just like Abraham. As a matter of fact, if you look in Romans chapter 3, it says when you believe the gospel, he accounts his righteousness as your righteousness. Wow. When you seek the Lord, you believe his word, he accounts as if you're righteous. When you come face to face with your own lostness, and you humble yourselves, God is opposed to the proud, but does what? He gives his unmerited favor, his grace, to the humble. Now, here's the troublesome part of verse 3. No, did you notice that? When I first read that, I thought, oh, what do you mean, perhaps? I don't like perhaps. <laughs> what, is, what does it mean, perhaps? Is this a, you know, kind of a roll of dice? Some make it, some don't. Even though you sought the Lord? Even though you believe? Uh, stop, stop. Remember, he's talking to the whole nation. 
He's saying, remember we talked about Manasseh? God was going to bring his nation, his judgment on the whole nation. Remember we talked about that? He says, when that judgment comes, some of you are going to get through alive. Some of you are going to be carried off into captivity. Some of you are going to die. Just because you know the Lord does not mean that if God were to bring judgment on this nation, that everything will be fine. Oh, yeah, your bank account will be fine. You'll have plenty of food. Everything will be fine. No, 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 no. That's not what he's saying. Because when Nebuchadnezzar and his armies burned and destroyed Jerusalem, there were many believers, listen carefully, there were many believers who were led off in chains. Can you name one of them? How about Daniel? Daniel was a righteous man. Did he not believe in the Lord? Where did he end up in? Boop, in Babylon. That's an example. What's another example? You remember Jeremiah? Jeremiah was a righteous man. He was there when they were burning Jerusalem. What happened to him? Nebuchadnezzar said, "Um, that guy, uh, Jeremiah, uh, let him go. Just let him go. Do whatever he wants. See? Perhaps, perhaps you might be saved when the judgment comes. He's not talking about the eternal, your eternity. He's talking about then, right then during the judgment. Many during the destruction of Jerusalem were killed and they were good believers. Many, many were taken off the captives. Some were set free. Okay. So, first issue is God's judgment. Second issue is a call to seek the Lord. Okay, third issue, found in chapter 3, the last part of chapter 3, verses 9 through 20. Notice what he says. Let's look at uh, two verses in that section. In that day, in that day, and here he's talking about, I'm sorry, He's talking about the promise of eternal rewards. So you have judgment, a call to seek the Lord, and then a promise of eternal rewards. As a result, notice what he says, verse 11. In that day you will fear no shame, because all of your deeds by which you have rebelled against me, for then I will remove from your midst, once again, talking about the nation, your proud, your exalting ones, and you will never again be haughty on my holy mountain. Uh, that, can't be, uh, that can't be talking about the days directly following the revival under Josiah. Uh, it's not talking about then. It's not talking about now. What is he talking about? Notice verse 15. The Lord has taken away his judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. Here it is. The king of Israel, the Lord is in your midst. You will fear no disaster anymore. What is he talking about? He's talking about when the Lord is king of Israel. What is that? That's during the millennium. So he's not talking about something that happened during Zephaniah and Josiah's day. He's not talking about something that's going to happen in our day right now. He's talking about the future reign when Christ comes back. Now, why does he spend so much time, the balance of the book, talking about this wonderful time so far in the future? A couple of reasons. 
The truth is, this age is never going to get it together, okay? Now, our dear Presbyterian friends, we love our Presbyterian friends, don't we? But we have to say to our Presbyterian friends, guys, this is not the millennium, because this doesn't seem very millennialish. No matter how many green jobs we create, no matter how many eat distribution of income and we make it all level, okay, and everybody's, you know, no matter what we do, no matter how many carbon footprints and all that other stuff that we're trying, it's not going to get better. It's going to get worse. It's not, now, that doesn't say we shouldn't be responsible toward, in ecology and, and we shouldn't trash it. We're not talking about that. But the word of God tells us it's, we're not going to bring in the millennium, guys. <laughs> it's not going to happen that way. Jesus said, in this age, you will suffer tribbles, troubles, tribbles. That's a combination of troubles and tribulation. In the, <laughs> tribbles. In this, in this age, you're going to suffer tribulation. That means trouble and problems. That's just the way it's going to be. So if you're figuring on, you know, we're in the millennium and everything's going to be perfect and you know, the government's going to make everything wonderful, and we'll all, it's not going to happen, guys. It's not happening here. We're looking for a city whose builder and architect is God. Okay. Second reason he focuses on eternal rewards is the sin of man did not derail God's plan. Now he postponed it. Do you remember what God used to do with Adam and Eve? He would, in the cool of the day, in the afternoon, late in the afternoon, he would do what? He'd walk with them. His plan, get this, his plan was to live among his people on earth. That was his plan. Now it got slightly put off by Adam and Eve and it's been a couple of thousand years, however, we won't, we won't argue about that. It's been a while, but guess what? His plan, if you get to the back of the book, all the way back, the last chapter, is guess what? God is going to live on this earth in the midst of his people. Okay? So, God's plan, been postponed, but not derailed by our sin. So he keeps going back to that. Guys, uh, you're not going to, your little sin, your issues, I'm still going to have my way. I'm going to live among my people. So he keeps going. He'll go back to that over and over and over again in the Bible. And finally, this truth of eternal rewards relieves the tension and the fear we have about our upcoming soon death. <laughs> Some of us are going to die a lot sooner than some of us others. And guess what? When your eyes close and you take your last breath, you don't turn to dirt. Well, your body turns to dirt, but that's not the end. There's something. <laughs> you're gonna, it's going to blow our minds. Now, I don't know if you've noticed in the last six weeks, I've done three memorials for people who are attending this church. 
We're getting older, guys. And every one of them went to be with Jesus. There's something about that. Now, you younger folks, yeah, you say, yeah, 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 oh, that heaven, whatever, you know. But us older folks, heaven becomes much more sweeter, much more of a reality. And we keep thinking, you know, you know, God, you could, today would be okay, because I'm kind of ready to get out of here. I'm ready. Now, here's the question. Are you ready? You got to be ready. So the third issue is the promise of eternal reward. So you have judgment, seek the Lord, and as a result, eternity with Jesus. There's the plan, guys. That's the plan. And if you look in the Bible, you'll see it repeat what? Over and over and over. Doesn't have to be real complicated. Let's put the cookies down where the kids can get it. It's really easy. Really, really easy. That's the plan. We see it in Zephaniah, and it repeats itself over and over and against the Bible. That's how you turn a generation like Josiah started with, turn him towards the Lord. Okay. Let me close with this. It's a story. A Taliban fighter, desperate for water, was plodding along in the Afghan desert. He saw something far off in the distance, and he headed for it. Hoping to find water, he hurried towards the oasis, only to find a little old Jewish man at a small stand selling ties. Ties. The Taliban asked the Jewish man, Do you have any water? And the Jewish man replied, I have no water. Would you like to buy a tie? They're only $5. Taliban shouted, idiot, I don't need your overpriced ties. I need water. I should kill you. But I must find water first. Okay, said the Jewish man. It does not matter that you do not want to buy my tie, that you hate me. I will show you that I am bigger than you. If you continue over that hill in the east, about two miles, you'll find a lovely restaurant that has all the ice water, ice water you could ever need. Shalom. Cursing, the Taliban, stag- Taliban fighter staggered over the hill. Several hours later, he staggered back, almost dead, and said, your brother won't let me in without a tie. That's a cute story. But it has an application. Here's the application. There's something coming that's going to quench your eternal thirst. There's something coming, guys. It's going to quench everything you've always longed for. It's it's just going to put it all together. However, you need a tie. And you know what the tie is? You know, it's not a physical tie. It's Jesus. Without Jesus, you can't get in. And you need Jesus before, before you come and face God.
That's the message of Zephaniah. It worked during the days of Josiah. Uh, It's true, it didn't last long. But for that generation, they turned and sought the Lord. May we be very much like the generation of Josiah. Let's pray. Father, we we thank you again for, for Zephaniah. What a neat guy. A little book maybe some of us have never even read, or if we did read it, we just skipped over it. But we missed. We missed it. Because during the days of Josiah and Zephaniah, the people of southern Judah, the people of the southern kingdom, turned to you. May we be much like that. We are um, The parallels between our country and the times of Josiah are... Very, very close. This book, like, could have been written today. Very, very close. May the people of God, may those in our hearing this morning, heed the words that are spoken by our dear brother in Jesus' name. Amen.